The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Since the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been telling us who Jesus is. Chapter 1 in the genealogies, Matthew makes clear Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. By the end of chapter 1, we read that he is Emmanuel, God with us, and that he's called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Then in chapter 2, we read that he is the true king, even though at that time Herod the Great tries to keep him from being king. In chapter 3, God the Father publicly out loud says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist says, make pass straight. He is the Messiah. Repent, turn to him. Chapter four, Jesus is the only sinless person who overcomes every one of Satan's temptations. Chapter five through seven, Jesus is the great teacher of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters eight and nine, Jesus is the king who heals and saves. Chapters 10 through 13, Jesus is the proclaimer of the gospel of the kingdom. But through all of these proclamations of who Jesus is, there has been a gap between reception and rejection. And that gap, though those roads were initially close together, throughout the Gospel of Matthew are widening and widening and widening until one day they come to an eternal fork in the road. Those who receive Jesus are part of his heavenly kingdom and know his presence forever. Those who reject Jesus are outside of the kingdom and according to Jesus will inherit darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth for eternity. So who is Jesus? Well, Matthew's been telling us for 14 chapters. So then why is it so hard to receive him as who he truly is? Because fear and doubt can cloud the truth. Fear and doubt can cloud the truth. That is the point of Matthew chapter 14. We're going to see fear and doubt cloud the truth of who Jesus really is. All right, here's how it breaks down. Part one, a violent murder. That's chapter 14, verses one through 12. Then part two, two incredible miracles. Then part three, this is who Jesus truly is. If you don't let fear and doubt cloud yourself to him. Ready? Part one, let's look in uh, verse one, Matthew 14. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch. Who's Herod the Tetrarch? He's not Herod the Great in chapter two. That's his dad. Herod the Great in chapter two was the one who tried to murder all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and beyond because he hated the idea of Jesus taking any power from him. This is his son, one of his sons. Herod Antipas is what he's known in other texts and in history. He ruled the provinces in which Jesus and John the Baptist primarily ministered. And that is why if you read the New Testament at home and you read the name Herod, the odds are it's this Herod, Herod Antipas. He is the most commonly mentioned Herod in the New Testament because he overlaps with the life of Jesus and the life of John the Baptist. He started serving in 4 BC and he finished in AD 39. But the Herodian dynastic family, there's a bunch of them, and they do get a little confusing, so don't feel bad if at home you're trying to keep track of Agrippa and Archelaus and Antipas. They're all different Herods. This is Herod Antipas. 
Now he hears about the fame of Jesus and notice what he thinks in verse two. So Herod Antipas said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. So Herod Antipas thinks that Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist. Now why would he think that? Look at the end of the verse. This is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. Have you ever noticed when you have a guilty conscience, you're more paranoid? (laughs) And that's what's happening with Herod. His guilt over his sinful lifestyle has increased his paranoia. But who's John the Baptist? Do you remember him? We've come across him twice in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter three, he is the prophet telling people, make way the paths, make them straight because Jesus, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to unstrap, he's the Messiah. Repent and believe in him. And then he promised in chapter three that Jesus, the Messiah, would have a winnowing fork and that he would judge all who opposed him. But then in Matthew 11, the second time we interact with John the Baptist, John the Baptist is in prison and he's discouraged. Can Jesus really be the Christ? If he's the Christ, why isn't judgment coming now? And Jesus gives us that incredible illustration of the children who won't dance when they're asked to dance and who won't enjoy the dirge when they're asked to enjoy the dirge. And in the same way, people reject John because he's too dour and judgmental, but then they reject Jesus because he's too convivial and inclusive. No matter how you present it, they find a way to reject. So people reject John, and now that leads to Herod having a flashback. So verses three through 12 are flashback. These are not what are happening right now. Herod, picture him on the seat on his portico on the porch, and he now is remembering with paranoia what happened. That is why he thinks Jesus might be John resurrected. Verse three, here's his flashback. Herod had in the past seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, who is here defined as his brother Philip's wife. So we need to give some background who this is, what's going on in this family drama. Herod Antipas was married to an unnamed woman who is the daughter of Aretas, who is the king of the Nabataeans. So Herod had a wife. And one day Herod was traveling with his wife and he saw his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and he wanted his brother's wife. So he got rid of his wife. He sinfully divorced her without any legitimate reason. He may have cited irreconcilable differences, who knows, but he got rid of his actual wife and she ran back to her father, Aretas. And then Herod stole his brother's wife, Herodias. So here he is with some sensational talk show stuff going on in his life. (laughs) And in verse four, unlike our culture today, John continues to call his life sinful. Let's look in verse four. Because John, notice the English, had been sane. It's from the Greek imperfect tense, which is a tense that means something started at a point in time, but then it kept continuing. John the Baptist kept saying, it is not lawful for you to have her, meaning his brother's wife. I find it very interesting that John continued to call sinful what Herod had made lawful, you see? So often in our culture, the idea is, well, you know, maybe it didn't start the right way, but they're married now. John the Baptist's attitude is, no, I know what they're doing is right in the eyes of Herod as the law, but even if Herod was to say, I am the state, he's not, God is, and so what he's done is wrong, and it's still wrong. 
Leviticus 18.16 says this, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Meaning to covet or lust someone else's wife, particularly your own brother's, is to sin against him and her and God. So John continues to denounce his evil, what Herod is living in. He's calling his lifestyle sin. Verse five. And though Herod wanted to put John the Baptist to death, he feared the people because they held John the Baptist to be a prophet. One commentator explains the dynamics between Herod and Herodias very well when he writes, like Ahab, Herod Antipas was wicked but weak. And Herodias, like Jezebel, was wicked and ruthless. And we'll see that now in verse six. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced. Now Matthew does not name this daughter, but we know from the other gospels, her name is Salome. Remember, this is his stepdaughter, and it's actually his niece as well. She dances before the company and pleased Herod. Now what's going on here? What is this dance like? The Greek word for dance doesn't explain either way because it's a fairly neutral term, but most commentators believe the dance was erotic and sensual, and I think they're right for two reasons. The Herodian dynasty, if you ever read about them, were an incredibly immoral group of people. But also dancing in the first century that was done in an audience like this was normally a sensual type of dance. To make matters worse, Herodias' daughter, Salabim, would have been about 14 at the time of this. So she comes to dance and she pleases Herod. So notice what Herod does in verse seven. He promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. If you've been with us on Wednesdays, you've noticed that the kings in Persia do that a lot. And here Herod, with drunken dignity, offers the same. Verse eight, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Prompted by her mother. What is it that has driven Herodias to despise God's man so much? The bitter hatred that comes when someone is telling you you're living in sin and you know it, but it makes you mad. In this passage, before we think it's too distant, ask yourself honestly, how do you respond to correction? When something in your life appears sinful and someone dares to say that, what is your response to that? You might say, well, I've never beheaded anyone. (laughs) But there are lots of societally acceptable ways to do something rather similar. You cut them out of your life, you remove them from any door of influence, because how dare anyone suggest that there's something wrong about you? Herodias responds that way, And that bitterness has now driven her to the point of an unjust decapitation of a man whose only crime is telling the truth. Verse nine, and the king was sorry. He doesn't really wanna kill him, even though a verse ago, he kinda did. That's how humans are. (laughs) And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, and notice this phrase, and his guest, he commanded it. Notice how often fear of man overshadows obedience to God. Because of his guests, he commands it to be done. So verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison and gruesomely, his head was brought on a platter 
given to the girl who the mother manipulatively used to get what she wanted. And so the girl brought the head of John the Baptist to her mother. Verse 12, Herod has now made an oath he should never have made nor kept. But I want you to, sorry, before verse 12, let me point out something to you in verse nine. Herod Antipas here alone is called king. He's not actually king, he's a tetrarch, which is two positions below a king. His father was king, and his distant relative Agrippa will be named king by Caligula in about AD 40. But Herod Antipas was never king. So why does Matthew call him king here? To be ironic. So that the original reader would have chuckled and thought, oh yeah, Matthew's calling him king when he least acts like a king. So verse 12, the disciples came and took the body and bury it, and they went and told Jesus. Now there, the flashback ends. And now we're back to real time with Herod, petrified that John the Baptist has miraculously come back from the dead as Jesus. Now, of course, Herod is wrong. Jesus is not John the Baptist. But the truth is actually far scarier for Herod. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And one day, he actually will rise from the dead. Jesus will. And everyone will face a reckoning for what they did in relationship to Jesus, and he will judge all people. And all who in their pride have rejected him will stand before his great throne. And there they will reap all that they have sown in their rejection. See, Herod is afraid that Jesus might be John returned, but in reality, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And the truth for Herod is much more frightening. See, Herod's half right. Jesus is a prophet. He's just much more than a prophet. Do you remember Matthew 12, if you were there that Sunday? In Matthew 12, Jesus explains that something greater than the temple is here. Someone greater than David is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Why pick those three? Why Jonah, David, and the temple? Do you get it? He's greater than Jonah because he's the greatest prophet. He's greater than David because he's the greatest king. He's greater than the temple because he's the ultimate priest. So here, prophet, priest, and king is the actual person that Herod needs to come to grips with, the son of God. And that is why these next two miracles are recorded in Matthew 14. I know they're normally preached separately, but Matthew 14 is one unit, all trying to show us who Jesus is, and yet why, because of fear and doubt, we may not receive the truth. So now notice the first miracle. Part one was a violent murder. Now part two, two amazing miracles. Here's the first of those two miracles. Verse 13 of Matthew 14. Look in God's word, Matthew 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, all right, don't, don't miss this. Jesus did not just hear that John the Baptist was decapitated. He already knew that. Remember verses one through 12, our flashback. What Jesus just heard is that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist. So the verse continues. When Jesus heard that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
Now the main point of Matthew 14 is gonna be to show us who Jesus truly is and why because of fear and doubt we sometimes miss who Jesus is. But there is a side application here that God has been convicting me about a lot over the last week. So let me share it and maybe it'll be helpful for you too. Jesus wants to get away. He needs to get away. And yet when he tries to get away, the people come and what does Jesus do? He has compassion and so he ministers to them. This was very convicting to me this week because sometimes when I want to get away, I want to stay away. (laughs) And when some come out, I lack the compassion that should motivate me to go and spend more of myself for their good. But in fact, this might be a struggle for you too because in our age of idolized comfort and weaponized personality test, the idea that I'm an introvert who needs to recharge can become an excuse to never let anyone bother my quiet time. But here our Lord, even though he is burned out, extends more because he sees people with compassion. Verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy, they can buy food for themselves. Oh, I I jumped ahead a little bit too far, didn't I? Uh, That was verse 13. I don't want to skip all the other verses. So verse 15, uh, let them go and buy food for themselves. But before that, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now catch up verse 16. The disciples say, send these people home. Let them get food for themselves. Jesus says in verse 16, I love this sentence. (laughs) They need not go away, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine their response to that? Uh, No, this is on you. You think there's a problem, you be the solution. You give them something to eat. And verse 17, they said, we only have five loaves and two fish. Fish were staple foods, loaves and fish were staple foods in Galilee's diet. In the text that we have from the other gospels, we read that the fish would have been small fish, maybe even pickled and dried fish, and the food, the loaves, are barley. They're the cheapest kind available. Now, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, but it points to the same point in all. The disciples say, we only have these limited resources. How could we ever do what you're asking us to do? But see, they've overlooked the most important resource they have. They have Jesus. So verse 18, Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Bring those little things you have to me. Verse 19, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. We, we also do well to pray before eating. But then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and his disciples gave them to the crowds. And notice verse 20, and they all ate and were satisfied from five loaves and two fishes. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So from the little bit that the disciples thought was insufficient, Jesus feeds everyone to the point of satisfaction until they don't want to eat anymore. And he has exactly 12 baskets left over. Why do you think exactly 12? People have come up with guesses. I think the clearest answer is because there are 12 apostles who said we don't have enough. 
What a lesson this is to you and I when we're ministering and we feel we're on empty. See, Jesus is reminding us, not only can I work through you to do everything that needs to be done to others, I also won't forget to provide your needs as well. When we minister and Jesus ministers through us, he not only works through us, but he works in us and provides for us all the spiritual recharging we need. The text points out that not only were there 5,000 men, but there were also women and children, meaning there could be up to 15 to 20,000 people, meaning it was a greater miracle than any prophet had ever performed because the greatest prophet has come. But there's a second miracle because first the apostles felt like they didn't have adequate resources because they didn't really grasp who Jesus is. Doubt has clouded their vision of who Jesus is and so he performs a second miracle immediately afterwards. Look in verse 22, immediately. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. This time he finally does. Verse 23, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. The Greek actually says many stadia, which would translate to at least a mile or two. The river here at this point, the lake, excuse me, was about eight miles wide. So he's a significant amount of miles from the boat. Beaten by the waves, the boat is, for the wind was against them. So Jesus is praying alone in the mountain and his disciples are on the boat. Now verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, which would be about three to 6 a.m., which means Jesus has been praying for at least three hours by himself. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. No, you didn't miss the preposition. (laughs) He's walking on the water. Verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And I wish the English translations would follow the Greek here because actually it would read like this. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Did Jesus make a grammatical error? No, he's quoting Exodus 3 verse 14 and applying it to himself. I am, which is the Hebrew name for Yahweh. Craig Blomberg writes, this is a conscious echo of the divine name of Yahweh and the clearest self-revelation Jesus has given of his divinity to date. Now verse 28. And Peter said, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, and the Greek could be since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Verse 29, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But notice verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. In verse 31, Jesus will describe the cause of Peter's sinking as doubt. Peter got out of the boat because of faith in Jesus. Peter walked on the water because his eyes were fixed on Jesus. But then Peter shifted his attention away from Jesus and his faith as well when he saw the wind and the storm. Peter had believed Jesus, but his faith wavered as the waves kept crashing. And yet Jesus reached out to save this sinking believer. 
Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, but then he does challenge him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus does something that we must learn to do. He takes doubt and scrutinizes it with an inspecting glare. Why did you doubt? You know what Jesus is teaching us to do? To doubt our doubts. To realize that our doubts aren't as strong as we think they are in a given moment. And under serious investigation, they crumble. This week I was reading an essay by Michael Poliani called The Critique of Doubt. He writes that doubt and belief are ultimately equivalent. To doubt denies one belief in favor of another belief which you choose not to doubt for the time being. See, Jesus is teaching us to doubt our doubts. Peter initially believes Jesus can empower him to walk on water and then he does walk on water, but then Peter has a more powerful belief in the form of doubt, the storm could drown him. Today, we also may initially believe of what Jesus can do based on what he reveals in his word. Remember, Jesus told Peter, come, so it's based on his promise. But then you can have a more powerful counter-belief in the form of doubt. You can fear societal or occupational or relational consequence. What Jesus calls when we get rid of truth in light of something that feels more pressing for our own safety, he calls that doubt. See, doubt is denying faith in favor of a belief that comforts you for the moment. So when Jesus says, walk on water, that's scary, but it's true. When the waves come, the more reasonable thing for that moment is to remember that I could drown. And so that counter belief becomes stronger and that's how doubt always works. But when that doubt is held under investigation, it doesn't hold up. Because if he was to keep his eyes on Jesus, there was no reason he would have sunk. So doubt your doubts. Verse 32 tells us the end. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. But that's not the climax of the story. So that leads us to part three. Part one, a violent murder. Part two, two amazing miracles. Part three, finally, one true son of God. Look in verse 33. Those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. See, the climax of this story is not the stilling of the storm, but the disciples' recognition of who Jesus truly is. This is the first time Jesus' disciples refer to him as the son of God in the Gospel of Matthew. They experience a moment of clear faith. Now there's still much growing that needs to be done and there's still much learning that needs to happen but this is a decisive moment in their understanding of who Jesus is. But Matthew 14 is all tied together. Herod violently murders John and now fears that He's come back to haunt him. The 12 aren't sure they could ever have the resources. And then when they have a moment of little faith, they're overcome with doubt. Fear and doubt obscure the truth of who Jesus truly is, the Son of God. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story with Herod. Herod Antipas, unlike his father, Herod the Great, got a second chance. 
We read in Matthew 2 that after Herod the Great murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem and beyond, Matthew 2, 19 just says it very simply, he died and that was it. But Herod Antipas actually comes up again. And this time he sees Jesus. This is in AD 33, it's in Luke 23. It's when Pilate could find nothing wrong with Jesus, so then he ships Jesus off to another place where he will be tried and he ships him off to Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas also can find nothing wrong with Jesus, the text says that. But once again, he fears the crowds. And so he mocks Jesus and sends him back to be crucified. And then after Jesus died and he was resurrected, here's what happened next with Herod Antipas. In AD 36, Herod Antipas was attacked by Aretas' army. Do you remember Aretas? That was his original father-in-law. He comes back and crushes Herod, no doubt, in spite for what Herod had done to his daughter. Herod then loses his army and loses his power. And Caligula becomes the new emperor and he makes Agrippa king. And so Herodias tells Herod, let's go to Rome and we'll try to reclaim your position of king. And when he goes to Rome, he meets Caligula and he's not as receptive (laughs) as Herod thought he was gonna be. And Herod Antipas ends up being banished for life and that's how his end comes. Herod, for all of his opportunities, allows fear to cloud his mind to truth. Which leads us today to three direct applications that I need to give to you. Here's the first. What will you do with Jesus? Do you realize your position before the true son of God today, the one who can command the winds and waves to be still and walk on them? Do you understand your sinful rebellion against him, the creator? Even Herod could find nothing wrong with him. And yet Jesus let Herod mock him and condemn him to crucifixion because Jesus was choosing to bear the full wrath of God against sinners like Herod. But for Herod, now it's too late. For you, it's not. Today then is the day that could be your day of salvation if you will acknowledge your sin and believe Jesus is the true son of God. Faith doesn't mean you know everything, but it means you know enough to cry out what Peter did when he was sinking. Lord, save me. And what Jesus did immediately for Peter, he will do immediately for you in the fullest sense of the term. He will send his arm to catch you in his everlasting, unshakable grip. And he'll pull you up and set you on solid footing. I love Psalm 50, verse 15, that says this, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and I will glorify my name. See, the account of Peter temporarily walking on water was not written so that you and I could debate the greatness of Peter's faith, but so that we would see the greatness of God's grace. That he can reach down and grab those who are sinking if they cry out, Lord, save me. But if you're here and you're a believer, should we not, on the other side of the cross, have more persevering faith than Peter? Do we not have more reason to know the solid footing on which Jesus places us? See, Jesus not only walked to Peter in a storm, but ultimately, Jesus walked the road to Calvary so that he could bear the full storm of God's righteous wrath. Peter not only 
Peter was rescued as he was sinking, but Jesus descended from glory so that he could reach down into the depths of hell to rescue us. And if he reached down to the depths of hell to rescue me when I was an enemy, surely how much more can I trust him now that by grace through faith I am a son? So will you humbly believe in Jesus and learn to doubt your doubts? Number two, are you willing to speak prophetically against sin, whatever the consequences? John the Baptist lived as well as any saved sinner ever has. But all of Jesus' followers have been called to courageously, graciously, winsomely, but boldly call sin, sin. And to call people to repent. John the Baptist is the first to lay down his life doing so. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, it becomes fairly common, doesn't it? We get to Stephen in Acts 8. We get to the arrest of the apostles by the end of the Bible. And so all are called to lose their life so that they can truly find it, whether or not we lose it through martyrdom. We lose the right to determine whether or not we live freely. Instead, we now live as ambassadors for Christ. Calling evil what he calls evil. Calling people to repent. See, John the Baptist actually was doing the most loving thing he could for Herod. He was giving Herod the opportunity to be saved by telling him his sin and how it separates it from God. For thousands of years, many Christians have done the same. Did you know that it's not at all new for truth to be unwelcomed? It is not at all new for people to be angry if you call their lifestyle sin. John was beheaded for it. See, Herod was living in sin. John called it sin so that Herod could be saved. But instead of receiving correction, Herod simply silenced his corrector. Does that sound familiar? In the flow of Matthew 14 and 15 and 16, this is why by chapter 16, as we quoted earlier, Jesus says, if any will follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then he can follow me. It means that we do die to self and we're okay with rejection in this world if we call what is sin, sin. So number one, what will you do with Jesus? Number two, will you speak prophetically on God's behalf? But now number three, Learn from this passage. That faith will lead you through difficulty, not necessarily around it. Faith will lead you through difficulty, not necessarily around it. In Isaiah 42, God is making a promise to his covenant people, Israel, but it's a promise in principle that's true for all of those who are God's true people through faith. Here's what God says in Isaiah 42, verse one. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I know many days we wish it said, when you go around the waters, I will be with you. But he said, when you pass through the waters. Do we not know this from Psalm 23? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. These passages remind us that God often in his wisdom does not send us around difficulty, but in faith he brings us through it. 
And that faith is buoyed not by our strength, but by doing what Peter unfortunately lost, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our faith is not buoyed by our resources. Our faith is buoyed by the person who can take five lousy loaves and two crusty fish and feed thousands. When Jesus looks at you and says, what are you gonna do? The answer is, we come to him, Lord, with you, all things are possible. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, teach us to praise Jesus in the storm so that when we're walking through the waters, it is seen that he is with us. Free us from the idolatry of comfort that is so common in our culture that teaches that anything difficult must not be from God. When in reality, we have books like Job. We have promises like trial will bring forth character and perseverance or that Peter tells his audience that he will add to our faith so that its genuineness will be tested like gold is purified by fire so that Christ will be glorified. Remind us, Lord, that you sent the 12 apostles in a boat in a storm. And it was there that had they looked at you, they would have walked on it. Remind us, Lord, that our resources, when we look at ourselves, are always inadequate. Because with man, it is always impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So help us to look at Jesus and not look past him. In this passage, we see Herod terrified that John the Baptist may come back. Well, the truth is way worse for anyone who rejects Jesus. Jesus has come back. And he now will judge all people in relationship to what they do in response to him. Remind everyone this morning that if they reject Jesus Christ in pride, there is no second chance. So may they put their faith in Jesus Christ and find that he has taken the wrath that they don't have to face, but they will face if they reject Jesus. For those of us who know the Lord, remind us that Jesus Christ is sufficient and we are complete in him. So each day, remind us who will never leave us or forsake us so that that truth knuckles down to the depths of our soul and gives us the confidence that keeps us from shame. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.